Today on Awaken to Grace, we are in week three of a great series called Triumph. We're learning how to live victorious Christian lives. We're walking through the first few chapters of the book of Joshua, and today we come to Joshua chapter three and chapter four. We're calling today Crossing Jordan. It is amazing what God did when he divided the waters at the Jordan River for the people of Israel to cross. We're going to learn many lessons in today's text. I hope that it greatly encourages your faith in an almighty, sovereign, living God. Let's go to Joshua chapter 3 today. Uh, While you are turning there, let me just address a couple of things concerning this, what I've called since February, this diabolical COVID-19, this coronavirus. Um, As I said in the opening, several have asked us if we'll continue to gather. We will unless our local authorities tell us not to. Uh, I want to talk to you just for a moment, just if you'll give me a couple moments here, just to talk to you pastorally about what I think is going on and what I think you, you should respond. You don't have to do this, but this is just, um, I'll tell you how me and my family feel. I think that, number one, you cannot lose sight of the fact, number one, we are people of faith. Now, in saying that, that doesn't mean that we're not sensible. I think there's a fine balance between being sensible and being a person of faith. So what are the sensible things that we ought to be doing? Well, I'll just tell you what it looks like for me and my family. We try to be prepared for anything. Do you know the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, You should divide your portions between seven and eight because you do not know the calamity that may come upon the earth. Isn't that a timely scripture for today? Because the fact is our world has changed just since last Sunday. Is that right or wrong? Literally, our world has changed this week. And... And I think the changes that we're seeing will result in some permanent change in our culture, in our society. But as people of faith, we, among all people, ought to be the most prepared. Because this is what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4. We are not children of the night that these things should overtake us. We are children of the day. So what does that mean? I think it means that we're emotionally prepared. I think it means we are spiritually prepared. I think it means we are relationally prepared. I think it means, and I'm saying for me and my family, I think that means we are provisionally prepared. I've talked to the church a number of times throughout the years. I haven't in a long time, so if you're relatively new to the church, you may not know, but I believe deeply, biblically, in putting back. I personally believe you should always have a month's supply of food on hand. I think you should always have your medicines or whatever you need. I think the Bible 
by and large, overall, in its entirety, teaches preparedness. The Bible says in Proverbs, look to the ant, O sluggard. Look to the ant who puts back its food in the summer for winter. And again, the Bible says you don't know the calamity that may come upon the earth. That calamity may be something like a pandemic, which is the first pandemic you and I have ever seen in our lifetime. There have been epidemics that never, not since, at least according to my knowledge, not since 1918, the Spanish influenza. We have not known a global pandemic. But that disaster may be a pandemic. It could be a natural disaster. It could be as simple as a job loss. And have you been wise to put back? Have you been wise to store? I'm I'm just telling you for my family, it has saved us in the past. We went through a series of financial tornadoes in 2012. Sadie and I had not been married all that long, but ever since we got married, we have been serious about putting back. And in 2012, you probably didn't have any interruption, but Sadie and I call it the Great Depression of 2012. And it was such a disastrous time for us personally, financially. There were multiple weeks that by the time we paid everything we had to pay, literally, and I don't exaggerate, we had $10 to go to the grocery store. But do you know how many meals we missed? Zero. You know why? Because we aggressively put back. Our rule of thumb is you store what you eat and you eat what you store. We don't go crazy. We don't go and empty out and get everything, we, uh, we, we get what we need and we use what we get, but we always keep back. A friend of mine went to Sam's Club and posted pictures of the shelves on Monday and they were empty. Thank God we didn't have to rush out because we follow the biblical example, the biblical pattern of putting back. We don't make it exuberant, and, and again, we store what we eat, we eat what we store. Pastorally, I want to encourage you, coronavirus aside, be prepared people. The Bible teaches that. You say, oh, but you should just trust in the Lord. I do trust in the Lord, and I trust that the Lord has given me a good enough examples in the Bible to not take for granted times of abundance and not pretend like it's always going to be there. So I want to encourage you pastorally, don't go into debt, don't take credit cards and go buy out Sam's Club, don't go buy all the toilet paper, all right? Don't go crazy, but ask the Lord what you should do for you and your family so that when times of calamity come, no matter what that looks like, you're prepared and the Lord has you well taken care of. Amen? So as we face this pandemic and as we pray, uh, what I wanna do right now, President Trump 
has asked that today be a national day of prayer. And I want to honor that right now. And I want us to pray for our city. I want us to pray for our region. I want us to pray for the frontline medical workers. I want us to pray for those who do have this virus, that they're going to recover. I want us to pray for the most vulnerable, that God's going to protect them, those who are most susceptible to this. Can we pray right now that God's going to help our country and God's going to help the world? Let's pray right now. Almighty God, we come to you knowing the sins of our land. You know them well, Lord. They rise before you. You know the sins of this country. And right now, God, we, your people, the people of God, the people of faith, the people of salvation, God, we repent on behalf of our people. We repent on behalf of this country. And we ask, oh God, for your great forgiveness over us and over our great sins against you. And God, we're asking in the midst of this pandemic, this coronavirus, this COVID-19, that heaven would help us in this hour. That God, you would protect our people. You would protect our country. And in fact, God, you would protect the world, especially those in countries where they don't have a health system. There's no hospital bed for them to go to. There's no ventilators for them. There are no medicines for them. They're truly left to themselves. God, I pray that this will be a time, an hour in the world that men and women would once again put their eyes upon you and put their faith and put their hope within the living God. We've trusted in economics. We've trusted in our jobs. We've trusted in our leaders. We've trusted in our health care. And could it be that we've been brought to a point where nothing and no one can help us except for you, oh God. And here we have snubbed our nose at you for so long. God, we repent and we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would engage your compassion toward us and pour your grace upon us and have mercy upon us and bring healing to our country, God. We pray for the medical doctors, for the nurses, for EMS workers, for emergency room workers, for everyone, God, who's going to be on the front lines of this pandemic, that, God, you'll have great care for them, and great energy and great stamina and great faith. And God, we pray for those who are the most vulnerable to this, those who are the most susceptible, that you, God, would give them great protection. Give your angels, encamp your angels around them, God. And God, we pray for those who already have the virus, that they will indeed recover. That God, you'll protect our nursing homes and protect those, God, who are most at risk. God, will you help our society to once again look to you and may a great revival stir and burn out of this calamity, God. So we, your people, we repent and we ask for your grace. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask, oh God, for your compassion. And we 
ask, God, that you be more active on the earth today than you've ever been. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Let's go to Joshua chapter three today. (coughs) We're gonna be in Joshua chapter three and chapter four as we discuss the crossing of the Jordan River. Now, we often sing in songs that the crossing of the Jordan River represents a time of death. Most commentators would disagree with that. Not to say that gospel songs that compare Jordan to death, not to say that that's unbiblical or in error. I wouldn't say that at all. I wouldn't argue that in the least. But for our purposes on talking about living a victorious Christian life, I want to talk very distinctly today. What does it mean to cross Jordan? What does it mean for our own personal lives? What does it mean to take God at his word and to be led by God into unknown territory? If you've been with us through some of this series, we are in week three of a series called Triumph. We finished last month the series called Battling Unbelief. We have followed this new generation of Israel. (coughs) Excuse me, it's important to remember This is not the parents who crossed, who came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. They've all died off in the wilderness. What we're talking about now, what we've been following since February through the wilderness, through um, up through now the death of Moses, the transition of Joshua, this is a new generation. These are the, the, the sons and the daughters that grew up on the way, they grew up in the wilderness. They didn't know the Red Sea, and they didn't, they didn't know Egypt. They only heard stories of what, of what God did, of God's power at the Red Sea. But they're getting ready to see for themselves what God was able to do. So if you've been with us in the series in week one, <coughs> excuse me, really regret going to Italy, but I got back in time. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. Some people are getting ready to leave. I'm kidding. (coughs) Sorry. That's a terrible joke. But anyways. We talked in week one. We called that losing ground already won. Because for 40 years, Israel had forfeited the great promises of God. We talked last week in week two. We called that the scarlet thread, household salvation. We saw the faith of one woman, Rahab, who was a prostitute. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen on our app, Awakened to Grace. Rahab was a prostitute, and what is remarkable about about Rahab that we saw last week is not only she mentioned later in the Bible in Peter, not only she mentioned in the great hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, but Rahab, this Harlot, this prostitute of Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. (coughs) She is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is the actual family lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself. And for Jesus Christ, 
to not be embarrassed, to not be ashamed, to have a prostitute for crying out loud in his family history, then you know what that tells me, church? That tells me that Christ is not ashamed, nor is he embarrassed by my sin, nor by your sin. God is proud to have you in his family today. God is proud to have redeemed you from sin. Amen? And Satan would tell you, oh, God's embarrassed by you. You should be embarrassed. Absolutely not. God is proud to have you in his family. And now we're going to transition in the book. (coughs) Excuse me. We're going to see the faith of one individual. We're going to go from the faith of Rahab from one person in chapter 2. So now we're going to see the faith of the whole country in chapter 3. We're going to see the faith of all the people. Now to give us some background information on, on Jordan. The River Jordan is not a massive river. As a matter of fact, in normal times, the river is only about 100 feet wide. To put that into perspective, our auditorium is about 100 feet wide. So if you look from wall to wall, maybe add another 15, 20 feet. But that would be about what you would be looking at to cross the Jordan River opposite Jericho where they were. That is still, though, when you add this to the mix, you're not talking about just the healthy men of war. You're not just talking about the 40,000 men of war that could have swam or crossed that river. We're talking about an entire people group. We're talking about an entire nation. Scholars tell us that at this point in Israel's history, there were probably up to a million to 1.5 million Israelites. How in the world could 1.5 million Israelites cross this 100-foot river? How could they get their little ones across? How could they get their livestock across? across and their cattle across how could they get their tents (coughs) I'm sorry please pray for me and how could they get all of their provisions how were you going to get all that across a hundred foot river and then to make matters even worse the bible is going to tell us that this is at harvest time And what we know about the Jordan is at harvest time, when it overflows its banks, no longer is it a river of about 100 feet. Instead, it is a river that is one mile wide. And now Israel comes to the banks of the river, and it's a mile wide. And how is over one million people going to cross? Have you ever found that the Lord sometimes treats you this way? God will lead you to a place. He'll tell you to go somewhere, tell you to do something. He'll begin to work in your heart. He'll give you great promises. He'll speak to you about things concerning your future, about what he's able to do, what he wants to do, what his will is for you. And then all of a sudden, you come across a great impossibility. Anyone know what I'm talking about today? And it seems as though God has made a great mistake. Because if God says the land is that way, if God says the victory is that way, if God says you must cross over Jordan, okay, God, how are we going to do that? You think they were able to construct a bridge wide enough? 
You think they could have created boats and made rafts and got 1.5 million people and cattle and livestock and everything else one at a time? Impossible. We'll learn in our last week in the book of Joshua, we'll learn about the great walls of Jericho and what archaeologists tell us about the walls of Jericho. Not only are they opposite Jericho, not only does chapter 4 say that when they crossed The mighty men of war came into the great plains of Jericho, but archaeologists tell us that within the walls of Jericho was a watchtower of 28 feet up in the air. You don't think Jericho's watching them? You don't think Jericho is seeing 1.5 million people gather on the opposite side of the Jordan? If they had taken their time crossing, they'd have been sitting ducks. They could have never won the war. God was going to have to act. God was going to have to do something supernatural. But what was God going to do? It amazes me that when God told Joshua to cross over, we shared in week one, Joshua said, prepare yourself for in three days we're going to cross over. (laughs) Friends, they weren't building bridges. They weren't constructing boats. They were taking God at his actual, literal word. As they come to the banks of the Jordan. Now, there's something interesting that makes this story totally different. They had with them what was called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant was, it was basically a piece of furniture that God instructed Moses to create. It was this large box Inside of it were certain artifacts of Israel from their history. There were the two tablets, uh, stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments that God carved with his very finger on Mount Sinai. There was manna in that ark that God provided supernaturally from heaven. There was Moses' rod in that ark, and these... (coughs) And what made the ark so special was not just the artifacts that were in it. It was that it had cherubims on it. And between that was the presence of God. Once a year on the most holy day, they would take sacrifice and they would sprinkle blood for the forgiveness of sins. And God chose for that time period, God chose to dwell upon that ark. The very literal manifested presence of God was on that ark. No one was allowed to touch the ark except the priest. If you were to touch the ark, you would fall over dead. That's how serious God took his holiness. That's how serious God took his presence. And the people of Israel knew and they understood that the very literal presence of God was in their midst. In this portion of crossing the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 16 individual times. That's how dominant it is in this story. When we get to chapter 6, and they march around the mighty walls of Jericho, they were led by the Ark of the Covenant. What does that symbolize to us? It symbolizes you ought to not do anything apart from the presence of God. 
When Moses said, God, are you telling us to go forward? Moses literally told God in the tent of meeting, I'll not go anywhere unless your presence goes with us. And what a strong statement the presence of God is, as it's mentioned 16 times in this one section of Scripture. And so the people of God gather on that side of the Jordan not knowing what God is going to do. I believe Joshua knew, but the people, here's what Joshua told the, told the people in chapter three. He said, watch, for God's gonna work wonders in our midst today. But there was something very important that Joshua told the people, very important. Before he told them that God would work wonders in the midst, this is what he told them to do. The day before, he said, consecrate yourselves. Do you know what that meant in biblical days to consecrate yourself? It was quite a sacrifice. See, in today's world, most of us, most of us, we shower daily, right? I hope we do. (laughs) We shower daily. A bath isn't a big deal to us, is it? See, in this day, in the wilderness, living in the wilderness, even, even in Bible days, just in, in Judea alone, water was a luxury. You didn't waste water for nothing. What it meant to consecrate yourself was two things. You were to bathe, very costly, very precious. You didn't waste water. And you were to change your clothing. Again, today... We throw clothing away like they are.